amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. This episode of Red Inca is on Australia's win in the 1999 World Cup from the perspective of a fan. And so we only went and got the creator of the TV show, Wilfred, to talk us through it. My name is Adam Zwar, actor, writer, producer, and I've just written a book called 12 Summers. We talked Sting, Shane Warne's Hurt Feelings, Glenn McGrath at First Change, Neil Johnson, comedy writing, South Africa, Lance Klusner's Power, Steve Waugh's Sledging, and two of the greatest ODIs ever. We'll get to your book, don't worry. But the interesting thing about your book is it's a memoir sort of told through cricket. I mean, mm. I know about your, your writing and your comedy and the documentaries and all those sorts of things later on. I didn't realize at one stage your job was, from what I could tell in the book, annoying famous musicians like Sting and Billy Idol. Yeah. That's an incredible way of starting. Yeah, it was an interesting, interesting time in my life because I, I wanted to get into journalism but I realized very early on I didn't have the aptitude for that foot in the door stuff, you know. I, I didn't really care about crime. All the stuff that in the 90s that journalism was interested in, I wasn't interested in. I was interested in just interviewing celebrities. <laughs> I don't know why. It was just a soft gig. It was just a conversation. It was like soft feature articles. That was my beat. I, I had a, an aptitude for it. I didn't piss them off for some reason. So mm. that's why I, I guess I continued doing it. I kept getting gigs and then by the time, I think it's 2001, Rupert Murdoch sent a directive to everyone at News Limited, as it was called then, more celebrity stories, less crime. And like, if I'd stayed on and if I, my career hadn't transitioned into filmmaking, you know, my time would have come. So I was essentially, through the 90s, just a pariah at the, the Sunday Herald Sun, you know, the, the inconsequential guy just interviewing Barry White and Sting and, and going on junkets with ACDC. But had I stayed on, I, I think I would have uh, been on the big bucks, which is very small in journalism. <laughs> in your book, you actually talk about an article that I'm positive I, I read, which was you, um, you did something I like so much because I kind of did this in my cricket sort of career a little bit as well where you contacted Quan from Regurgitator, who was like, you'd grown up with him, but you hadn't seen him in like 30 years. I remember, like I did, I did a similar thing. I'm not going to name the cricketers, but there's a couple of cricketers who I knew a little bit. And then as we got older, it was like, mate, I need this, you know, this favour. And they're like, okay, yeah, I sort of remember you from that, you know, uh, that Who are the cricketers? I'm not going to name Ed Joyce there, but uh. there's been a couple of cricketers <laughs> who've come along. And, and, yeah, you know, okay. we're... we're Again, you do know what I mean? Like, they're not even that famous. So they're just famous enough that they can help you later on, but you have to yeah. remind them who you are first. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Jimmy Mara had to remind him who I was. So, Quan, I really wanted to write for the Sunday magazine. It was a new magazine, and you got paid, I think, three times or four times as much as you would for writing for the paper, right? So, for some reason, when your words go on the glossy paper, your fee goes up exponentially. And so the, the new editor of the magazine, she was English 
and she just wanted to employ English writers. But I was kind of relentless. I just kept pitching her stories. And then I said, okay, what about Regurgitator? She said, I'm not interested in Regurgitator. I said, I grew up with Quan, the lead singer from Regurgitator. It'd be a nice story. And she went, okay, in the story, he needs to admit that he knew you. And you're friends. You just can't make this up, Adam. It can't be just you in the kind of narration saying, you know, we were <laughs> friends. So I went along to, I, I arranged an interview with the record company, met Quan, and he didn't know who I was. And I'm just going, so I'm just going through the paces of the interview and knowing that I wasn't going to get paid and my career as a magazine writer was over. And then at the end, he went, You, Adam Zwa? And I said, Yeah. Hey, he goes, Ah, look at photos of you at home. You used to have red hair and freckles, right? And I went, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I remember you. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. I blocked out a whole period of my life, you know. And I now had an, a career as a magazine writer, so it was good. But, yeah, thank you, Quan. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. How much cricket are you watching at this period? Like, you're obviously writing these features. Sometimes you're off, you know, getting drunk with, with rock stars and whatever and traveling around and doing all the sorts of weird things. But how much cricket were you watching, let's say, before the 99 World Cup? I... Uh, so every summer I'm, I'm watching cricket. It was remember in those days it was before Foxtel, so you really didn't get much of. Mm. The, I mean, you get the Ashes, but you wouldn't get much overseas cricket. You wouldn't get a tour of Pakistan or. We started getting West Indies and and India occasionally right. in that period, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. So I would be watching all the Australian summers, and I watched obviously the tragedy, of the '96 World Cup, and but it wasn't like I do recall sneaking into the Herald Sun offices and watching the, the, the famous 2001 series in India. You know, that was that was the big time. And that was when Foxtel's ratings just went through the roof with that series. It, it became almost a going concern. They got huge subscriptions. But my recollections, I mean, you'd have to remind me, but, you know, obviously the 96 World Cup, I remember the 99 tour of the West Indies vividly, and I remember Warren being dropped for that fourth test. And I distinctly remember that footage of him in the warm-ups before the fourth test. <laughs> I think I think Robert Linders posted it where he's just ambling through the witch's hats. He's, you know when those people walk across as like a, the zebra crossing and they're trying to do the right thing by saying, yeah, I am hurrying, and they move their arms, but their legs are just really they're just <laughs> normally walking. Well, that was what Ward was doing. He was just like pretending to run, but his legs were walking. He looked like the saddest man in the world. And so I remember that series vividly and then going to the 99 World Cup and I remember seeing us play Scotland because a former school friend of mine was on the, I think he's on the outskirts of the, of the Scottish team. His name was Peter Steindl. Um, he was a few years above me at school. And so I was, I was like hoping he'd play, but I don't think he played. But I remember us being very lackluster in that game and being worried. And I should have been worried. Well, you, you covered the, that World Cup quite well in the book. And, that, and that's the chapter that we're sort of mm. we're going to be chatting about. But so you just talked about the Shane Warne accent. You also talked about the thing that I'd forgotten about, which was the booze ban, uh, where they said that the players yeah. couldn't drink. But then the other thing, which I love from, especially now when you think about Moneyball, what a weird thing this was. They decided not to have Glenn McGrath take the new ball and they yeah. copied Alan Donald. But the thing is that kind of everyone knew that Alan Donald wasn't taking the new ball because he couldn't control it. He needed he the slightly it, older ball. Yeah. He, yeah, he yeah. Just, even for Warwickshire, like they would get him to bowl first change. Glenn McGrath could control pretty much any ball that had ever been, <laughs> you know, invented. Right. It was a very weird start to that World Cup. Shane Warne was still angry. There was no alcohol. And Glenn McGrath, the, probably the greatest modern new ball bowler, wasn't using the new ball. 100%. I think there was a, uh, I think I'd like to add the word curfew too. Oh, curfew. Curfew. Yeah. So the genesis of the booze ban was the 96 World Cup. Well, of course, when we got that into that, the get out of jail semi final against the West Indies, which is still remarkable how we won that. In the same way that 99 semi finals remarkable, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, the hand of God for both those <laughs> matches. So 96 World Cup semi final, the guys just get on the piss. You know, as Damien Fleming says, we got out of jail. By the way, do you remember that final ball to Courtney Walsh, that Damien Fleming bowled? It was just a perfect oh. ball. It got the, I think it hit the top of off or top of middle, but Fleming reckons he got it wrong. Um, he meant to bowl somewhere else. But anyway, I just thought it was amazing. They shouldn't kind of do this reflective <laughs> history, should they? They should just leave them kind of romance with us. So they got on the piss in a huge way, and then – they went to Lahore for the final and they trained during the day and uh, Sri Lanka trained, trained at night and therefore Sri Lanka were able to see that the heavy dew that was falling on the ground at night. 
and of course Mark Taylor and the Australian team had no idea about this juice. So when they, so the thing you you do is is when you win the toss is you field first, and Tubby won the toss and bowled, and then you just saw Warn the greatest fucking leg spinner ever, just not being able to control the ball at all. And I, I think he and Mark Ward just got smashed. And there were, like, I'm going to guess here, but there were several drop catches. And then at the end, the Pakistani Prime Minister didn't shake Mark Taylor's hand because, she, you know, I think it was a religious thing. So it was just a horrible day for the Australians and there was problems between Simpson and, and Taylor and then, you know, you, you saw Bob Simpson leave. So all of that, that was the intelligence they brought into the 99 World yep. Cup. Don't get pissed. We're all pretty straight-laced. And then they decided to plagiarise the Alan Donald thing. We'll also bowl our spearhead at first change, you know. So the boost ban and doing that just didn't work, surprisingly. When I talk to people like now, like people say, you know, what's the weirdest thing you've seen in cricket? It's like Adam Dale opening the bowling in a World Cup ahead of Glenn McGrath would have to be up there. So I don't know if you know the full Adam Dale story, but this is my memory. And I, I, I used to play golf with someone who, like his father-in-law or something. If my memory serves correct, he was a Nike executive who worked in Melbourne was playing club cricket in Melbourne and got a gig working for Nike in Queensland, moved up to Queensland, started taking all those wickets and ended up at its like No disrespect to Adam Dale because what a career to be able yeah. to turn that around and play for Australia. But he's not quite Glenn McGrath. And no. uh, it's remarkable. So they beat Scotland just, and they didn't play particularly well. And they lost to New Zealand and Pakistan, didn't they? They the first Yeah, two yeah. Losses. So the New yeah. Zealand game was a comfortable loss. But the Pakistan loss, I remember... Akram just getting, like, huge reverse swing. So those two losses in a row, I remember the Pakistan thing, we've got no chance. And so then, yeah, because it, it, particularly Akram, he just had the ball on a string that day. It was just terrifying, particularly to the left-handers. And then, of course, the booze ban was gazumped. Tom Moody, who had played in the 87 World Cup, 92 World Cup, didn't play in the 96 World Cup, but was brought in the 99 World Cup to be kind of a war's right-hand man and kind of person to, to lean on. Wasn't really brought in to actually play, but then he played in the next game. They started with Brendan Julian, didn't they? Was it Brendan Julian? I think he was the other all-rounder in that oh, squad. Yeah, and right. my, my well, memory was is that they, I think they just thought, well, Tom Moody's got a lower ceiling but also a lower floor and as you said he knew the england conditions better than most of them because he was an absolute pro in english conditions yeah and you know he's fine he's like what six foot six six foot seven he's gonna hit a spot yeah, yeah. and he can bat and it was like it w- i always felt like it was that kind of decision of brendan julian could give us anything but we could also lose a bunch of games with him or whoever the all-rounder was i, th- I thought it was julian because i think that was before harvey well it certainly wasn't harvey and i don't think it was simons either so i think that was the end of the sort of brendan julian era but that yeah, sort of yeah. moody just that safe pair of hands it's incredible to think that he played in that many world cups because when you say he played in all those world cups he didn't actually play that many one day no like he was in and out of the side no he was like a world cup specialist <laughs> So we lost against Pakistan. Um, isn't it funny how your mind plays tricks on you? But we only lost by 10 runs. And then we played Bangladesh. So we had to win every game after that. Yeah. So the booze ban was relaxed. Moody was brought into the team. And we had to win every game. So the next game was against Bangladesh. We won. And then West Indies, which we won. And then it went into this kind of strange, I don't know if you remember it, but that strange kind of thing called the Super Six where it was like a round-robin thing, where six teams who got into the next stage all played each other. Yeah, so they had that for 99, 2003 and 2007, I think, as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. And then, obviously, I can't even remember if they had it for 2011. I can't remember if it had disappeared. But, yeah, weirdly, I don't know where the idea came from because usually things would come from another sport. Like, for instance, if you have a look, the... Um, this is one of my favourite facts ever. The IPL has a preliminary final because it's stolen from Rugby League and Aussie Rules, right? Yeah, yeah, and, you yeah. Know, you, know, you sort of know where these things come from. And it's like, Super Sixes, it just sort of happened and we all had to try and work out what it was. And it was like a quarterfinals with two less teams where it was also a round robin. That's right. And also, I, I think run rates were still brought in, you know, so what, what you did in the, in yeah. the original game was still brought into the Super Six, right? So we still had to win everything and we did. So we beat India, we beat Zimbabwe, and then the, the last one which we needed to win was against South Africa. And that's, of course, I think I say this in the book, you know, that 
that became the greatest limited overs game of all time, which would then be surpassed a week later. Yeah, it's phenomenal. The South African games are so good that people forget that that might have also been the height of Zimbabwe cricket. Like Neil Johnson played that incredible. I remember I was such a Neil Johnson fan at that stage. I was heartbroken when I found out he was actually a South African who just turned up for Zimbabwe for that tournament. But like he didn't have this long career, right? That was it. It was like he came in and you're like, this guy can bowl okay. This guy can smash the ball. What's he going to be like? And we just never really saw him again. Like by the next World Cup, Zimbabwe were I don't think they went anywhere. And then obviously all their problems since with the black armbands and getting banned from test cricket, like that was it. The 99 period was when they were good at test cricket and when they were good at one day cricket. And my memory is Neil Johnson, well, he certainly made a lot of runs. I think he made a hundred. And there was that point where it's like, yeah. is, is some bloke that no one in Australia has ever heard of going to stop Australia from winning this world cup uh, before they, obviously I think they won quite easily in that game in the end, but you're right. It's obviously about, South Africa, because that becomes the biggest thing. You know that Zimbabwe team, it reminds me, <laughs> I've got to be really weird here, it, it reminds me of the 95 Brisbane Bears team where, that, that was um, Robert Walls coached. They probably were the second best team that year. From, Carlton was the first, but they got knocked out by Carlton in the first round of the finals. I remember thinking, because I'm a Carlton fan, that was our toughest game, and no one ever remembers them. No one remembers yeah. They were a good team. And that was the height of Zimbabwe in cricket, and we would never see the likes of that again. It's a shame they didn't go on. Now, now I think about it. Yeah, um, no, there's absolutely no doubt. It's um, I remember um, having a conversation with a cricket writer once, and I said that every team that had sort of become a test playing nation had given us something. And he's like, "What about Zimbabwe?" And I said, "Me and all my friends had Zimbabwe shirts in the late '90s. Like, we absolutely wow. loved that team. That was in the days when you could go to Rebel and you could get the opposition shirts <laughs> and everything. These days, <laughs> it costs two hundred dollars right. to get like an Australian shirt, but in those days you could get everything. So they get past the Zimbabwe game. Oh, but well, no, Neil Johnson, one hundred and thirty-two and two for forty-three in that game, by the way, against Australia, which we won by forty-four. I'm going to give you a better detail than how many runs he made. I'm pretty sure he batted in a red floppy hat, like the Richie Richardson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Did yes, I remember that. Just every detail of what he did was just absolutely great. So I'm pretty sure I got this from your book because I don't think I looked it up. South Africa were the dominant ODI team between the '96 World Cup and the '99 one. They had 57 wins and 16 losses. This is obviously before they were known as Chokers, and they were looking like they were going to be this rising superpower of world cricket mm-hmm. at that point. And the other thing is that Lance Klusner is in that side. And I would say that he had the best single World Cup of any player probably ever oh. in 99. I mean, it was, I'm just going to read you some stats because it's so much fun. In nine games, he averaged 140 with the bat while striking 122. Just for those listening at home, in 1999, we didn't even understand any of these numbers. And that was a low batting tournament as well. Almost no one made mm. any runs. The no. average strike rate in that tournament was 65. <laughs> so wow. he was double what a normal batter was. And he was a frontline bowler. He took 17 wickets at 21. You know, So he did absolutely brilliant with bat and with ball. And he changed cricket because Ricky Ponting told me that was the first time they ever saw range hitting. The Australians turned up in one game. It might have even been the first semifinal. They turned up in one game and he was out in the middle and someone was lobbying him slow balls and he was hitting them out of the park. The first thing was, oh my God, how hard does this guy hit it? And the second thing was, what's he doing? That's not a throwdown. That's not bowling. It's just, he's just hitting it as far as he can. So the backstory was he was injured for a long time then, so he couldn't bowl. So he just spent his time in the nets batting. And he said, I decided not to work on my weaknesses, defense, and work (laughs) on my strengths, which is just slogging. So he'd just be in the net slogging. All the time, slogging, slogging, slogging. So surprisingly enough, when the 99 World Cup turned around, he was actually good at slogging. And he hit the ball so hard, and I say this in the book, you know, so I don't want to repeat myself, but, you know, if it went a metre either side of you, you wouldn't have got it. And Paul Rifle had a pretty good pair of hands. He just hit straight through them. Anyway, we'll get to that. I guess we're still in the Super Sixers, aren't we? We've got to do that. Drop the World Cup game. Exactly. We haven't even got that far. But I wanted to build up how good... South Africa had become yes. and Lance Klusner. And I think that's where South Africa was going at that point. There was, we've already talked about Alan Donald as well. Like they had this phenomenal team. You mentioned this and I think it's quite fair. Australia struggled in that first game against South Africa. And Steve Waugh did something that I still find remarkable to this day. He basically started sledging the bowlers. And 
you and I both grew up in Australia and I played in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. Where I played, that was quite common, mm. right? You know, there was quite often an angry player, but you didn't see it really at international level. Even by shield level, you might get Greg Matthews occasionally mouthing off to a bowler. <laughs> but even by the time those guys got to shield level, they basically, they'd shut up a little bit. Mm. Steve Wall was doing what a guy playing for, you know, Hadfield Force would do. <laughs> yeah, you said to Cron, yeah, I'm taking you down today. And, I mean, of course, it kind of stands to reason that, you know, Cronier being such an earnest person that, you know, you could get under his skin. War picked him. I think I'll just go to the scorecard. So South Africa, I think, made, well, I know they made 271 for seven. That, that, Which is a very good score, definitely above par. I mean, that batting order you talked about is like, so, so Kirsten and Gibbs openers, my God. You know, Daryl Cullinan, oh, well, you know, that's an asterisk because of Warren. Cronier, Rhodes, Klusner, Pollock, Boucher. They're your batters. Now, War, before this game, had just had a spectacular tournament. I can't remember how many centuries he made, but he'd been batting really well, and Gilchrist would be batting well as well. And so Australia were immediately on the back foot because War was run out for five and Gilchrist was bowled for five. And so we're all immediately kind of going, oh, fuck. And then Ponty comes in, 69, Damian Martin, Mr. Inconsistency, <laughs> just this, this amazing player who sometimes does really well and sometimes just doesn't. So at this stage when war comes in, we're three for 48. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was early, wasn't it? Because he came in at five, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And 271 in that tournament, it'd be interesting to go back and see the scores, but the two leading wicket takers in that tournament are Shane Warne. Do you remember the other one? No. I'm pretty sure I want to get, I hope I'm going to get the name right, but it was New Zealand's Jeff Allett, the left arm seam bowler, who I think him and Warren took the yeah. most wickets. It was, if you could swing the ball that summer, you were almost impossible to play. Like yeah. if you look at them in the World Cup, a generation later in England, even though the ball still dominated a little bit, it was like, that was a pretty easy tournament to bat in. That 99 tournament, it was like, you, you could easily be three for 50 in every game because the ball was just nipping around everywhere. I mean, the perfect example is that Alan Donald couldn't control it. It was swinging so much yeah. in that era. And so I think for Steve Waugh, that's almost like a perfect situation because that almost made it more like test cricket. Yeah. Because if it was a shootout, Steve Waugh's probably, especially by 99, he probably didn't have the power and, and the game that he did when he was younger. But by that point, it's like, okay, it's nipping around a little bit. I've got to take a bunch of singles and get under the skin of the opposition. That's a Steve Waugh type of game, isn't it? Perfectly said, I think. Yeah, he came out and he had that kind of that Clint Eastwood grimace that he had. And he was pretty much in the zone from the moment he walked out. And so he, his partner at that stage was Ponting. Ponting hung around for a while. Actually, they, they made 120 partnerships. So, yeah, more than a while. And then his partner was Bevan. So he was, what was he on when he clipped that ball to Gibbs? Was it 50 something? Oh, that is a good question. Yeah, he must, have, he must have just been after he was 50, wasn't it? Yeah. And then, so I'll let you explain it because you've done the full research on the language in the book, which I always forget. What did Steve Waugh say? Do you remember? Oh, God, I've got to look that. I, I've got to look the, <laughs> I can say, uh, I've got it here. I've got your... Oh, you got it Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it said, hey, Herschel, do you realise you've just cost your team the match? Which, of course, becomes... You just dropped, <laughs> you just the, dropped World the World Cup. Cup. Such a interesting thing because... I work in, in television comedy where, you know, there's basically people write a script and then what happens is you get it punched up. And punch up is uh, you'll get about four or five people to, to look at the script and, and they'll do alts and toppers. And an alt is where you cross out the original joke and you make it better or tighter. And uh, a topper is you add another joke to the original joke. So that is a perfect alt. By the time the men and women of the press did a job on it, it became you dropped the World Cup. So, yeah, and it, <laughs> <laughs> again, just go with it, Steve. Why are you telling everyone the truth? So th that whole thing, I want to talk about this because it's really interesting, and you go into the full story. So in the team meeting, Shane Warne says, just be careful with Herschel. He tries to flick the ball up after he's taken a catch and just wait when, you, when you're out there. So uh, By this stage, it's, it's important to know. So I mentioned before the 99, the fourth test in, in the West Indies where he was dropped. Yeah. So he goes to the 99 World Cup and he's sulking. His wife's about to have their first child. And, you know, he's bowling not well. Remember, we say he's bowling not well and, and he says he shouldn't have been dropped. The guy shouldn't have been playing. I mean, he just had a shoulder operation. The surgeon said, you won't bowl again. 
right? And here he is bowling um, in the West Indies, and he's not getting any purchase. And but maybe by the World Cup, it's kind of recovered enough to bowl well. But he's sulking. He's got the sads, and he's pissing everyone off a bit. And I think it was before the Super Sixes, the team has a, a walk through Hyde Park, and that's when War and Warren had their um, heart to heart. War at this stage has diagnosed the fact that you need to big Warren up. You need to tell him he's the greatest and you constantly need to just say how wonderful you are and, and this is what you can do and we can't do this without you kind of thing. And he it, it does the job. And also Moody gets everyone else to do it as well. Just subtly, everyone else is just going around saying, come on, Warney. But he was still a little bit of a kind of a liability among the team. So when this team meeting happened and Warren at the end of it said, hey, guys, stand your ground when you hit a catch to Herschel because he's a skylark and he tries to flick it up in the air really quickly. There's a chance he's going to lose control of the ball. The two kind of uh, retellings of that story from Damien Fleming and Steve Wall, both of them kind of said no one really gave a shit. <laughs> no one, yeah, yeah, thanks, Warney, whatever, mate. And then, of course, we were saying before, Wall's in his 50s in that spectacular final Super Sixers game. He flicks it to Herschel. Herschel takes the catch and immediately before controlling it, flicks it up and it just falls out of his hand. It's not out. At no stage could you say you had control of the ball, but there is a kind of debate between David Garren and Tony Gregg in the commentary box where <laughs> Gregg says, you could almost make a case that he caught that. And Garren says, Fred not, Fred not. <laughs> <laughs> and instead of going, oh, that was close, you know, that war, he just doubled down in his kind of aggression and... Oh, my yeah. God, it's the greatest rear guard innings in the history of, of Australian cricket. And it was one-handed as well. I know that it's not like the tail mm. fell apart, but, like, you go forward to the 2003 World Cup and Michael Bevan's at the heart of kind of all of those sort of rear guards. But the thing is, I think you mentioned Bevan briefly there, but, again, a bit like Lance Kaluzner, not remembered as much now as he should have been, but, was yeah. you know, at the time was the best one-day player in the world. But yeah. Steve Ward just goes ballistic. And yeah. I said he didn't have as much power. I mean, and I'm probably basing it on back, back in the 80s when he used to whack the ball a lot yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he scored it more than a run of ball in that chase, right? And I don't think anyone else for Australia did. No, so Ponding 69 of 110. Steve Waugh 120 of 110. Bevan 27 of 33. And the closest after that was Moody 15 of 16. So, yeah, I mean, I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but maybe I saw it beforehand, but I hadn't really seen... That slog that he, I don't know, did he call it a... The slog sweep. The slog sweep, yeah. I hadn't really seen it before, uh, but he did it a bit in that game. I think he's basically, I don't know if he invented it, but he's certainly no. the person who made it popular. But I reckon it was probably, <laughs> I reckon he did it a little bit in, this is when we need Dan Bredegar on, but I reckon he did it a little bit in 98. But from that point forward in his one-day career, even in his test career, he started playing it, right? Like yeah. if he got a spinner and he was struggling a little bit, he'd just get down on the knee. And it seems like such a logical shot now, but I just, outside of drunk blokes in club cricket, it wasn't really a shot that you played, unless, maybe unless you're a tail ender. And so to see him do it, and also how controlled he was, right? Like, it's yeah. like, he knows exactly where it's going. It felt like every time he got down on that knee, it went for six, right? Like, yeah. it was so controlled, and he was so on top of it. That whole thing was incredible. And the only thing I want to add to the whole Shane Warne thing, which I find hilarious, is I don't think it would have mattered in that situation if Steve Ward walked or not because Herschel dropped the catch so early. I know. You're right. It does follow <laughs> the story if you if you take that out a little bit because, you know, True. it's kind of that idiot savant thing that Warne's got where he just says something remarkable. He's a kind of a predictor. He's a great predictor of the game. Well, he used to be, probably more than he is now. <laughs> but, you know, it was one of those things where you, you go, oh, you're a bit of a clairvoyant. Yeah, and we end up winning that game, by the way, with, with two balls to spare. So it was actually closer than I thought. I think because and... we had five wickets in hand, Moody was still there and War was still there. In the end, mm. I don't remember the tension. Like, there was tension because it was the last over of a one-day game. But mm. I don't remember anyone thinking that somehow South Africa would pull that out. Of, <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. You know, or anything. Yeah. Like, I, I felt like Australia had that because if War was there, they were going to get there. So the great thing about this is that game, I'm trying to remember, was on... Was it the 13th or 14th of June? I've, got, I've lost my dates of my notes. It was the 13th uh, or 14th it, of June. And then the next game was on the 17th of June. So yes. it was almost like a Champions League game where yeah. you play them and a couple of days you play them again. And this was a completely different kind of game. Like Australia batted first 
Steve Waugh and Michael Bevan both made 50s, but Australia were bowled out for 213. It was Australia didn't put on a good total. They hadn't really put any pressure on. By 99, even in this low-scoring World Cup, 213, when, you know, as you talked about before, was Boucher was batting nine, wasn't he, I think, in this side. Yeah. Like, they had plenty of batting. 213 should not yeah. have been a problem for South Africa at all in that semifinal. Yeah, so obviously, yeah, what you were saying, again, that 213 was um, made up of uh, War 56 and Bevan 65. We were all out in the, in the 49th over. Well, 50th over, actually. And, yeah, and then you, you're up against this, as you say, Kirsten Gibbs, Cullinan, Cronier, Callis, Rhodes, Pollock, Kluzner, Boucher. So, yeah, you're dead right, nine. That guy could bat. Yeah, this is the thing. When you go through this particular game, right, so Gilchrist and Mark Waugh, Ponting, all-time legends, Lehman, very famous player. Then you've got Steve Waugh and Bevan. So test legend and a one-day legend. You've got Moody who's played in every single World Cup. And then mm. Australia in their bowlers have Warren and McGrath. And then you mm. go to the opposition. You know, you've got Kirsten and Gibbs, so probably their best opener. And then Gibbs, who's probably underrated. In fact, Gibbs, yeah. if you take away the drop-off catch of Steve Waugh and the match-fixing that he didn't even go through with, probably gets remembered <laughs> a lot more fondly. Daryl Cullinan, who could bat against everyone who wasn't Australia. Hansi Cronier, yeah. again, more famous for other things. Josh Callis is like just slipped into this batting lineup, right? Like I know. And then you've got the world's best fielder behind him, John C. Rhodes. Sean Pollock, who wasn't even the best all-rounder in that side because Callis and Klusner are in the side. Yeah. It just goes on and on and on until you get to Alan Donald. Like, I don't know if we'll ever have that many games of one-day cricket where there's that much talent as yeah. there was in this. And the thing is that we're talking about the semi-final. Yeah. This is not the final. And it's this weird back-to-back -back game. And they're chasing 213. And Kirsten and Gibbs look in control, right? They're knocking <laughs> the ball around like nothing is happening. And I'm thinking, what would I have been? I would have been 19, probably unemployed at the time, as I often was in those days, or, you know, about yeah. to quit a job or whatever the situation was. And I'm staying up late going, oh, my God, I'm going to stay up and watch South Africa beat us in the World Cup semi-final at that point. Yeah. And then... Yeah. Enter Shane Warne, who has, you've already, you've already done the backstory, man. He had the shoulder injury. He felt shunned by the team. He wasn't mm. the Shane Warne that we knew. And then suddenly, South Africa just get mauled by him. Warne describes in his book, so when he brings on, I don't know when he actually, he brings on Warne quite early. So Warne, I think, takes the wicket of, is it Kirsten first? No, Gibbs. He got Gibbs with the big one, didn't he? Yeah, but Warne talks about in his book how that first wicket that he got, he just... All the players rushed to him, but he kept on running. He kept on running, and they were all trying to tackle him to, to just bring him under control. He just had so much strength. And he said that in his book that that strength and power and, and kind of energy that Warren had in that moment was able to pass it on to everybody else in the team because everyone else in the team was feeling really low. At that point, you know, South Africa were none for 48. So, you know, I mean, Warren, where, where do you start with his career? But... You'd have to always put that up as one of your favourite spells of Warren. Yeah. He single-handedly, if War won the game before, Warren won that game. Yeah, so that he took three wickets and eight balls, didn't he? And I yeah. think they ran Cullinan out just afterwards as well. So it was three wickets in eight balls. And the Gibbs ball is probably yeah. as good as the Ganning ball, yeah. except for the fact that we expected that from Warren by that point. I think that's yeah, the big difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would argue the best ball he ever bowled was probably the one to Strauss. In, Strauss, in, I was going to say, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a better one than the Gatting one. But by the time that happens, like, the, my favourite thing about the Strauss one is he does a very similar thing to Gatting in that he keeps looking back at where the ball pitched and where it hit, <laughs> no, no. confused. And you're like, mate, you've had 12 years of watching this. By this stage, you should understand what he's going to do. But you still didn't. The Gibbs ball just opens Gibbs up. Like, he just ends up on the wrong side of it, doesn't he? And mm. it's like watching it live, just going, how do you play that? Like, how does a, a batter just hit that ball? It was spectacular. It almost makes me cry. But it's interesting. I, I do think with um, – I, I just watched that Shane documentary, and I, and I do think with poor old Gadding, he must kind of, like, want to underplay the Strauss ball so he can keep on going on documentaries and picking up a fee. <laughs> he never shies away from it. I mean, it must be a – I've, as a viewer, I've, I've done these kind of documentaries in the past, and, you know, you, you end up having to pay him a fair bit of money to, to come on and talk about these things, particularly gadding. I mean, I remember doing the uh, the Bodyline documentary, and we didn't have enough money to, 
get DK to talk, you know. Didn't have enough money at that stage for Greg Chappell. For the Underarm documentary, we, we spent most of the budget on Chappell. They're not cheap when they're talking about those moments. So I think Gadding does make it. Just This is just a side note, everybody. I think Gadding has got a very good side career going on talking well, about that. Well, Gadding, if you interview him, so he's got he's had this really interesting career, but he doesn't like talking about some of the other things. So was it he broke the bed in yes. a hotel? Yeah. He went on the Rebel Tour, which he really, yeah. really doesn't like talking about. Trust no. me. I've tried that three or four times with him. Yeah, right. And he played yeah. the reverse sweep in the 87 World Cup final. Yeah, the the when... reverse sweep is probably more embarrassing than anything, to be honest. Yeah. And so he pushes you towards Ward in a way of, I don't know if they have this in other places, but certainly it's a big thing in Australia and a little bit in England. That sort of after dinner speaking circuit. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've been to dinners and Gatting, he's just there with the worn thing, you know, from beginning to end. He's literally got a tight seven minutes on the worn ball that he can rip out at any stage and just nail it. Like you could, you could see him on the tube in the morning, right? And he'd be like, okay, I've got eight minutes till my tube comes. I'll give you the story. Bang, let's go. And he really does have that. But weirdly enough, like Strauss and Gibbs aren't really defined by their balls at all. And yet their balls are, A, as I said before, it's, they should have known that this was coming, right? That, yeah, that, yeah, that, that, yeah. That's the thing. But yeah. it just, the way it opened Gibbs up and then opens mm. South Africa up. And I'm trying to remember, I'm pretty sure Hansi Cronier doesn't even hit his one to Mark Wall. Warren is spinning the ball so much by that stage. I reckon Cronier either hit the ground or missed it all together. It goes to slip. And it's like the umpire, everyone is just on Shane Warne at this point. And they are just rolling towards victory. And then Callis and John T. Rhodes put together a really good partnership. Yeah. And suddenly they get close, but they're just a little bit behind the game at that point. Yeah, that's right. And so Warne gets Callis and Rifle gets Rhodes. And then it all starts to get interesting. You know, Pollock hangs around for his 20 off 14. But then when... Lance Klusner comes in. And, you know, there's always that debate. I mean, since we're talking about it in detail, I'll say it. But there's always that debate. Why didn't Klusner bat higher? Mm. We talked about it before. He averaged 140 in that tournament, right? And I know at that stage, they really were pushing the whole Sean Pollock is the next great all-rounder thing. Which, to be fair to Polly, I don't think ever quite happened. And it was a very handy bat, but he was never at that level. Surely at that point, it doesn't matter, even if you think Sean Pollock is going to be a great player for the next 10 years. Lance Klusner literally at that stage had a strike rate of over 100 and a batting average of probably over 100. You just put him in. The minute Callis goes out, you just send him in, don't you? That's right. It's like most recent series, Stark's batting well, so Cummins puts him ahead of him. You know, it's like, it's just, so Klusner comes in at eight after Pollock. So then it's just like, holy shit. It is the most savage hitting you've ever seen. And once Fleming gets Pollock, Boucher doesn't hang around long. He gets bowled by McGrath. And then there's the Elworthy run out. Do you know what Steve Elworthy is now? I heard an interview with him. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> no. I, what is he now? So Steve Elworthy is now the guy who plans the World Cups. Oh, my God. So I'm trying to think. He didn't do 2007, and they had a shocker, the ICC. And I don't know how Elworthy ended up in the position, but he's working for the ECB. Most of the tournaments go through him. I think he might have just left the ICC recently. I think that's right. I I can't remember the exact details. But basically, Steve Elworthy, who for us is this kind of figure. We go back to the start. We talked about Alan Donald not taking the new ball. It was Steve Mm. Elworthy who took the new ball, who none of us had any idea who this bloke was. In my memory of him, he was grey-haired and and pale thin back then. And he's exactly the same now. He once bowled me out in a charity game, so he's still a little bit too quick for the likes of you and me. Went straight through me. In fact, he got me for a second ball duck, and I saw him sort of look at me as if to go, this guy's a cricket rider, he's shit. And then I went out and bowled, and I took three wickets. And afterwards he goes, oh, "Oh, you must be a bowler. And I say, yeah, yeah, Steve, yeah. Not not much (laughs) for the batting. Not much for that. But he's, a, he's a, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. But I saw so funny. He's so famous for being in a World Cup, and now he's the guy who plans them and, and makes sure that they all work. That's great. So he gets run out by Rifle and McGrath, and so you then have Alan Donald batting at 11 with Lance yeah. Kluzer. And this is the point at which – did you watch all the games, you like me, or were you just watching Australia? I pretty much watched Australia because, I correct me if I'm wrong, were, were all the games on Channel 9? I don't think so. No, I don't think they were. I think they uh, yeah. were like extended replays yeah, rather like than I, live event. Yeah. I remember being on the Zimbabwe bandwagon. 
Like I, yeah. I remember it, like just loving that and just like hoping they'd make the semis. But you know, that, that was when I was feeling all generous. <laughs> you know, I started to get when you feel like cabin fever and locked in. When uh, after that, I think it was the New Zealand was it the New Zealand game? No, the Pakistan game where we had to win everything. We went, no, fuck everyone else. Let's just get to the Super <laughs> Sixes. Yeah, I can't remember if I watched it all, or just because almost every ball of Lance Klusner was a boundary, and so every highlight you saw was him. But I felt by that point, he was like the Darth Vader figure of that World Cup for Australia <laughs> because he was just so big and so strong. And it felt like there was like entrance music when he came out. And yes. like, as I said, the Australians were put off by him. Like they were watching this guy whacking balls 120 metres in centre wicket practice and going, we can't do that, right? Oh, he's making McGrath look silly. Yeah. Yeah. And his bat looked three times heavier than anyone else's bat. Oh, and he's also no. from a technical point of view. He's the first guy that ever worked out how to hit. Well, he's the first guy who ever worked out how to consistently hit Yorkers for four, right? So oh, you had someone yeah. like Bevan, who if you bowled a slightly wide Yorker, Bevan would like slice him away and, and Arjuna Rantunga would slice him away. But it's like, it didn't matter if it was a leg stump Yorker or whatever. Klusner was just like, if I drop my bat on this, my bat's so heavy, it's going for four anyway, yeah. right? As an Australian, you're thinking, how the fuck are they going to get past him? You'd given up and you, that McGrath over... I think it was that second last over. That was the, the catch to rifle that went for mm. six. So Donald's in. So you, you talk about the mu- – sorry, just to backtrack a bit. You talk about the music when Klusner comes in, the Darth Vader music. So it's it, it's definitely some sort of like Benny Hill thing when Donald comes in because he, he's looking around. It's like, I shouldn't be here. Mm. This is too intense. I've never seen – even from my television, I've never seen such fear on the on the face of anyone really, you know. And it's remarkable because by that point – Alan Donald is already probably the f- most famous player they've had since readmission. Mm. He had dominated in English cricket. I don't know how much you know about Warwickshire, but they won all the titles when he played for them, right? Yeah, Because they right. had Alan Donald. But they also had a great team around him. He was used to playing in, you know, televised games in TV. He played mm. for South Africa, right? And he was a great player already by that point in his career. But you're right. You look at him in that thing and it's like he he feel, there's a great story about alan donald in a one day where he was commentating with neil manthorpe because there was no secondary commentator so neil manthorpe had to get someone from the change room and alan donald's going yeah we've lost a couple of wickets here and and then he stops and he says to neil manthorpe oh shit i better go i think i've got a bat next <laughs> that's what he looks like in that game right where he's suddenly sitting there reading the paper going uh well i'm a bit nervous i don't want to cut co- oh I've got to go in and somehow help us get to the World Cup final. But the thing is, from that last over, they needed nine from six. Yeah. I mean, for me and for you, watching as Australians all the way back, it was like Clouster ended that game at the start of that over. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. So the, the plan to Klusner for the death was to bowl around the wicket, for Fleming to bowl around the wicket and Bolo's kind of like Yorkshire's, York, Yorkshire's, Yorkers outside <laughs> off stump. And... Donald just like dispatched the first two for four, just simple. It was so it was a, it was a tie, so they had four balls just to get one run, and then Fleming said to War, "I'm abandoning the plan. Can I abandon the plan <laughs> and go uh, back over the wicket?" And War went, "Yeah, I guess. I mean, what harm is there in just trying something new?" And because like Fleming always says, to Steve's credit, he said that I could do it. And I'm thinking, what well, <laughs> you know? What else is he going to say? So yeah, Fleming then goes over the wicket. And that's when Klusner clips it to Lehman. And what was the running situation there? Did Donald back up too far? And then Lehman shot at the stumps and missed. Yes. Yeah. He had like an underarm shot, didn't he? I yeah. Yeah. And like... he just missed. It yeah. was like, and I remember <laughs> Fleming in one interview just saying, yeah, everyone was a bit down on Buff because, you know, we're into the World Cup final because we're, even though just for, for those playing at home, I, we had a higher run rate than South Africa, so a tie would put us through to the final. Yeah. And so Lehman, obviously not known for his fielding or his physical exploits, but, yeah, mm. I think you're right. What had happened is Donald, clearly Klusner and Donald had not had a proper normal human conversation at this point <laughs> because Donald just sort of takes off and Klusner's thinking, I've got three balls left. Yeah. And so Donald is two metres when he turns around and the ball's gone straight to Lehman. Also, to be fair to Donald, Lehman's a left-hander mm. and so it's possible that he just saw, oh, that's gone to the right-hander of a fielder. Mm. Will, uh, sorry, to the left hand of a fielder will take off. But either way, I think I'd be overly kind to Adam Donald at that particular point. So he doesn't get the run out. What then should have happened <laughs> is they should have gone down and had a lengthy conversation of exactly what their plan was for the next ball 
the ball after, and then worst yes. case scenario, the last ball. That doesn't appear to have really happened. <laughs> no. What happens next? Again, it's like that West Indies semifinal. It's like, what? For me, <laughs> I, like I've watched it many, many, many times since, and it all makes sense to me now. But at the time, it made no sense to me. So Fleming bowls, Kluzenek clips it to Mark Wall. Yeah, Mark Wall. So the first one was the mid-on, second one was the Mark Wall mid-off. Yeah, mid-off. And so Donald is not going anywhere because what <laughs> yeah, happened to the previous moved. ball was like, there you go. He's like, so, so hating himself for what he did backing up so far. So he's just like, no, nah, I'm putting that bat in my crease. <laughs> Meanwhile, Kluzenek is just plowing down the pitch. Wall throws it to the bowler's end stumps. Do we think that maybe he was going for those stumps, but he missed? Fleming collects it, underarms it to Gilchrist. Meanwhile, Kluzen, he's not coming back. He's not going back into his crease. That Donald takes off, drops his bat, and just sprints. <laughs> like, you know that last scene in Gallipoli where they're just running? <laughs> That's what Donald's doing. And Gilly makes no mistake, collects and pulls down the stumps. Like, there's a really interesting bit where Tim Lane was commentating the radio and they had this deal. I don't know who he's commentating with. It was a South African commentator and the deal was that whatever team went through the World Cup, that person would call it. So, mm. you know, Tim Lane was just sitting back and he said, he was like, oh, we've lost this. And then suddenly he had to kind of take over the call. And, uh, yeah, Australia through the World Cup final. I mean, I was on the phone to a mate. We were watching the last five overs together and, and you know, writing the emotion of that. And then I just remember being on the floor screaming into the phone and it was possibly the greatest moment of my life to that point. <laughs> I remember going in, so it must have been, what, three or four in the morning, Melbourne time. Yeah. And I remember running into my dad's bedroom and screaming and trying to explain it and him looking at me. <laughs> Like, I was speaking another language because he hated ODI cricket. And it was only after that period he ever watched any of it. And him going, it's a one day, I don't give a shit. And I was like, no, no, you have to understand what happened. You have to understand what happened. But I didn't know what had happened because I've just been in the other room watching everything. And I remember trying to explain to him that Lance Kluzner couldn't turn around. And him looking at me at 4 a.m., whatever it was, going, what are you talking about? That's right? brilliant. That's brilliant. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, unless you're just recording it on your VHS. I mean, what? How would you have played it back to your dad? You know, it yeah. was. Uh, it lived on in our minds for a long time because you know I don't. Th I don't even know if YouTube was a thing back then. I, I don't remember no. getting a chance to see it for years. You know, and you saw it weirdly like the way that remember they used to show that well sports tonight and all, and all yeah. those sorts of things. You'd yeah, yeah, see yeah. it, but they wouldn't show the full context. And they importantly, you didn't see the rifle drop. You needed the rifle drop and the two boundaries to really understand how much South Africa were on top at that point. And then the Lehman throw at the stumps. And Australia looks broken yeah. when Lehman's throw misses, right? Yeah. And so that was the bit that was always missing to me. It's like, yeah, you get the comedy run out and everyone blames Donald. And it's like, Donald shouldn't have been out there. Donald didn't know what he was doing. And Kluzner clearly did not tell Donald he was going to run no matter what on that ball. And he also hit it to the, oh, I know, Ponting was the best fielder in Australia at that point. But he hit it to the second best fielder in Australia and one of the best fielders in the world in Mark Waugh. Yeah, yeah. It's and the calmest head too, yeah. by the way. You know, that we haven't even talked about Damien Fleming actually rolling the ball on the ground. That's like, I'm trying to think, you only see that in cricket when someone panics and they don't know what else to do. Yes. There are so many ways it could have gone wrong as well. And it just didn't. And <laughs> just before that ball, you saw the telecast has a shot of Warren looking like the saddest man in the world. He's just like, I've done all this. I've just bowled the best 10 overs of ODI bowling, probably in the history of the game, and we're going to fucking lose. Fuck you guys. You should have had me captain. You shouldn't have dropped me in the fourth test against the West Indies. And then you just see Warren and Warren just like about to, like looking at each other, and there's a still shot of them about to hug. And you kind of go, it is interesting because you're a fan of the game, I'm a fan of the game. You know kind of the background and you know the enmity between certain players and everything. But I love it when it all dissolves for those moments where something mm. good happens and they go, oh, no, fuck it. You know, and for that moment, they're friends again and they'll resume hostilities when they get back to the sheds. But that moment, everything's forgiven. Well, the other great thing about that is, that I, I sort of mentioned it before, but that is the moment that starts the South African choking story, right? Yeah. And yet Australia chokes just as hard. In fact... I would say that other than the first three wickets of Warren, so mm. when they're number 48, 
South Africa's in front, no doubt about that. But for the rest of the game, until Klusner hits those two fours, Australia's massively ahead in that game. They've always mm. got South Africa behind mm. the rate. They're struggling. I think one of the reasons they didn't send Klusner in is they probably thought that Pollock was just a bit more polished and it was such a high-pressure right. situation. They were a little bit behind the game. They made you know problems with their tactics. But Australia missed the catch, missed the run out, and then Fleming gets hit for two fours in a row. Like, Australia absolutely shit the bed for about four or five balls in a row. Yeah. And it just happened to be that for two balls then, South Africa did worse. Yeah, and it was, you'd have to say, we say this a lot, and we you know, make the point a lot with different cricketers, but it, it was definitely a kind of, a, you know, it, it portended to what T20 cricket would become, watching Klusner, you know, bad. Yeah. And you just, whatever the target was, was a lot less when he was batting because you just thought he, he could just envelop it very quickly. But yeah, so we won and they learned from the 96 World Cup. No one got horribly pissed. I think there was just a few drinks in the hotel after the game. But it was more like looking at each other. Did that all just happen? Did that really <laughs> happen? And the Pakistan final was a fizzer. Yeah, I mean, my memory of that was, and it's weird because Pakistan had beaten us early in the tournament, but my memory of that was that I don't remember being worried going into that game. I was very worried no. going into the semifinal. I thought South Africa could definitely beat us in the semifinal. And then obviously that game is over so early when Mark Ward takes the, the flying slips catch. Like almost yeah. from that moment onwards, you're just like, well, this is over. And it, it was actually probably because, as you said before, two of the greatest one-day games back-to-back -back ever. And then the final was just terrible and Pakistan didn't turn up. And yeah, Pakistan yeah. had a very weird tournament because they beat Australia early on. But they also, they lost to Bangladesh in that tournament. And that's why Bangladesh got test status. So Bangladesh had two wins in that tournament. They beat Scotland, who at that stage, Scotland were the favourites to get the next test gig. And they beat Pakistan in a game that some people may assume not everything went completely <laughs> as it should have. But either way, yeah. Pakistan had this very weird tournament and they had a great team. They had the two all-rounders, that Azam Mahmood and Abdul Razak, who mm. don't go on to be greats. But back in those days, I remember being, look at these guys. They just come in and slog it and they've got slow balls. Abdul Razak was so stylish. He was like yeah. the Pakistani Mark War. Yeah. And then they get to the final and it just all fell apart. And I just remember having this letdown of like, you can't give me two great games like that. Even the Neil Johnson game, if you want to go back to the yeah. Zimbabwe one. It just felt like everything was great. And then that final just, just sort of fizzled. This is all memory going now. But if you look at that um, Australia-Pakistan, the first game, it was an overcast day, very low cloud cover. And that's where Akram was just getting all that kind of swing. Again, this is memory. The final was beautiful sunny day, and I just don't think I don't think the conditions played to Pakistan at all. But um, who would have cared? I mean, they made 132 in the first inning, so it wasn't really relevant, I guess. No, I mean they just got behind so early, didn't they? At that point, yeah. And it's just, I mean, interesting. I'm trying to remember they had Saeed Anwar, Ijaz Ahmed, Inzaman Al Haq, Moen Khan, Shahid Afridi, Azamamu, Wasabakram, Sakhle Mushtaq, and Shoal Bakhtar. The level of one-day yeah. talent in that particular tournament, and I don't know if it's because we didn't have as many good teams, but that particular tournament feels that if you just look at the top maybe three or four 11s, just the yeah. phenomenal players that came right across it. And it was, in some ways, you know, uh, people, the 92 World Cup is the most remembered because it changed the game. 96, obviously, because of what Sri Lanka did. And there's quite a few, well, you know, 2011. But realistically, it's like that 99 World Cup, just for the players and the cricket, is just so memorable. It really is. And you're a Collingwood fan. So do you remember, I think it was in the 2002 Granny, when Buckley won the um, Norm Smith, mm. and he goes on stage and he gets, and then he rips it off. He's really upset, you know, because he, you know, oh, this is not the medal I wanted. And so when Klusner gets player of the series, so Australia win against Pakistan, obviously, Klusner gets player of the series. The most upset man you've, ever, you know, more upset than Warren was. He's furious. <laughs> He's furious. And by the way, we've mentioned Donald before. Every interview that Klusner does, he's so careful to go into bat for Donald and say it wasn't mm. his responsibility. If the top six had done their job, yeah. we would have got this done. Because Donald would have just caught so much heat over that, and particularly with the drop bat and everything, but the, the comical nature of him getting out. I think it's really important that Clusen does that, and I think it's great that he does that. Not Donald's job in those days anyway. We didn't put such pressure on bowlers to be able to bat their way out of you know bad situations. 
So for you, you know, in your career, you know, we're talking about you as a journalist and obviously you've gone on to do, you know, much more than interview Sting. Not that that's not an accomplishment, man, but <laughs> no, no. you've gone on to do so much more. You know, flicking through the book, what the 99 World Cup seems a very important time in your life, mm. right? Like that period, maybe from there to about 2001 seems like a real hedge point. When you were writing this, you sort of taken back to how you felt. Weirdly yes. for me... Because you mentioned Regurgitator and because it was 99 World Cup, there's a lot of things and the Herald Sun and you talk about Carlton Football Club and all those sorts of things from my youth that I'm now even more, it's, you'd be shocked to know not that many people over here get Regurgitator references when I knock them <laughs> off in London. Right? So I suppose for you, was a, that seemed like a really, really like a hinge moment in your life. Well, it's a very interesting year because you're a Victorian. So if, there's the 99 prelim, which is big for Carlton against Essendon. And then that same night, Melbourne Storm beat Parramatta in a ridiculously unexpected way to get into the grand final that of the 99 NRL grand final. And Steve Brax beat Kennett in a shock election win. So that I remember those three things happened on that night in, I guess it was September 99. And then this happened beforehand, the World Cup. It was such an interesting year in in everything where, where things did get turned on their heads. I mean, South Africa should have won. South Africa were bulletproof going into that tournament. They should have won. You know, th there's something else that we've missed that Trevor Holmes did say to Steve Waugh just after the um, Pakistan game. If you don't make the semis, you're gone as captain. Mm. I mean, Trevor Holmes had a lot of those conversations with, <laughs> with Steve Waugh. I mean, it's like he just looks like the angel of death. I remember there, there was that bit I put in the book where Trevor wanted to uh, tell Ward that he'd been dumped from the one-day team and he wanted to do it in, at Launceston in, in an ODI between New South Wales and Tasmania. And he goes up and goes, can we um, – he goes up to Ward, who's padded up, ready to go in, and he says, do you mind if we have a chat about your future? And Ward goes, I'm about to go into bat. Can we do it tomorrow? <laughs> but in Hone's defence, he thought that was the right time to do it. He thought it was kind of uh, a little bit insensitive to do it the next day, which is the Allen Border medal. You know, he didn't want to spoil was Alan Border medal. Anyway, as we know with the Langer thing, there's no good time to, to break any news. <laughs> Why did you write your memoirs around cricket, cricket. writing? Because I know you've made the documentary, but you're not really known for your cricket, cricket. stuff as much as you're known for comedy and, and Wilfred and all those sorts of things. It's really interesting. So, so the original reason was that I just went through my life and everything that's, that's happened, and cricket's always been the banister that I've held on to to keep me going through the dark times. So it also helps me remember what's happened. So I, I, I know, <laughs> you know, I remember the 99 World Cup. I remember a relationship going really bad at the time but not caring because 99 World Cup. <laughs> so those things that uh, I remember, you know, 2001, uh, the India series, my mum being really sick. I remember 2005 Ashes, I had a play on that about cricket called The Inner Sanctum in Melbourne that did really well and that Border and Taylor and Tony Dottermade saw, which is one of the, the highlights of my life. Yeah, yeah. It's like I remember Dottermade just looking at me, yeah, I'm not, I'm not Border or Taylor. But I'm going, fucking Tony Dottermade, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, so that was always there. Now, what I wanted to do to, to differentiate myself from you guys or Bredick or any of those other cricket writers, is this comes from more of a romantic point of view. This is an emotional point of view. This is not a boffin's point of view, although I did take a lot of care to get everything right. I wanted to separate myself. I didn't want to, you know, I'm not Pete Lawler. I'm not Gideon Haig. I'm, this is not my profession. For me, it's not a kind of a dry thing that I, you know, that I analyse and write about in a kind of impartial way. No, no, no. I'm a big Australia fan. It's Australia first for me, cricket second, just love the green and gold. Although I'll sit and watch any cricket match, I, I for me, I'm a very one-eyed supporter. So it harks back to Nick Hornby fever pitch and, and writing about Arsenal. Don't confuse me for a proper cricket writer who's with uh, kind of like sober views on the game and everything. No, 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 I'm, I'm a fan. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I still feel that way and I'm supposed to probably not be like that. But yeah. thank you very much for coming on the podcast, mate. Jared, thanks. That was great. I love talking about all that. Thank you so much for getting me on. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, 
act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. So thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.